Wow, isn't it good to be in the Lord's house this morning? Um, I just want to just take just two minutes and just say uh, what an honor and a privilege it is. I travel about 40 some odd weeks, and when I say that, uh, that God has really endured my heart to this uh, family and to you as a body of Christ, I mean with all sincerity, and it is an honor uh, to be invested with your family, to pray for your family, to stand with your family. It is an honor to be in your country and to be in your church, and so I don't take this this weekend lightly, and I know we've talked about a, a, a lot of just chick things, if you will, this weekend during the women's conference, uh, but I woke up at 6 a.m. Uh, your time this morning, and the Holy Spirit uh, really began to quicken some things uh, to my heart. And as I was praying, I said, God, what is next? What is, what is the message? Not a canned message, not a cute message, but what is your message for this morning? And I couldn't get away. Uh, when we were in Branson at the Gathering of the Eagles conference this last October, uh, I began to speak on, on legacy. And so when I awoke this morning, and I have as an evangelist hundreds of messages, you know, and, and I keep a lot of those with me. And I just began to to feel out, God, what is what is the now message of where we are as a body this morning? And he began to take uh, some thoughts that I've accumulated on legacy, and he began to take those to the next level. And so this morning, that's what we're going to deal with. We're going to talk about generational legacy, because I believe with all of my heart that you as a body are posed to see uncommon and super supernatural miracles because you are poised as a generation that is going to be uncommon in the earth. And so, Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your truth. We ask you for that uncommon anointing to invade us this morning. Father, we speak against every drowsy spirit, every tired spirit that is in this place this morning. Father, may we sit up. May our ears be in tune. May our heart be quickened to your voice, to your understanding. Give us eyes to see things that in the natural we cannot see. Give us ears to hear that things that are on a different frequency that only can be heard in a supernatural third level anointing. And so we thank you today that we have eyes to see and ears to hear the things concerning your kingdom for your purpose and your advancement. And we praise you this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Do you have that PowerPoint ready? Thank you. You've been a wonderful team this week and thank you so much. I'm amazed at uh, how many things transpire just within a year. I know that if you were to look back, you as a church family, and I like that word because it is a family, as a church family have experienced many highs and lows in the last 12 months. And as I began to think back since I was here last June, how many uh, encounters that in my own personal family, the assortment of changes uh, that we have endured have been very uncommon. Some of those have been positive, life-altering moments. Others have just been flat-out challenging. Uh, my husband and I, we have four beautiful children. I mean, they're just absolutely gorgeous. Four children between the ages of 30 
and 20. And four of two of our four brilliant children decided uh, that they would do something phenomenal. And that is two decided to get married within six days of each other this last year. That's how brilliant they are. Two of our four children decided to give us granddaughters within 60 days of each other and turn around five weeks later and tell us there was a third granddaughter on the way. So somewhere amid uh, the challenges and changes, and we added about 30 uh, members to our family, and that's a big change. But somewhere in the middle of all of the changes, uh, my perception concerning the term legacy began to radically shift. And it was in that shift that I uh, was shocked to discover that with the emergence, the birth of the next generation, that for the first time in my life, I was able to fully comprehend the purpose of our generation. Do you know that you and I will never fully understand the weightiness of our personal anointing, of our assignment, of our now, until we begin to spiritually witness what God is going to do next. That is the reason that I am so on it about us being able to spiritually see into the future. Because until we can witness what is next, we will never be able to endure the pain of the now. Can I say that again? Until we spiritually witness what God is wanting to do next, not with our natural eyes, but with our spiritual understanding. And so we can catch a vision of what God is wanting to do next. We will never be able to endure the pain of today until we envision the next. We will never have reference of the now. Jesus was able to endure the shame on the cross, the Bible said, because he had the ability to hear the heart cry of his church, what was coming next. It wasn't the pain on the cross that kept him on the cross, but it was the witnessing and hearing of the birth cry of the church that was coming that kept him on the cross. Something transpires in the realm of faith when we begin to hear the heart cry of our legacy. It is the cry of our legacy that mocks the attempt that the enemy has made to destroy our lives and our destiny. When we begin to hear spiritually our legacy, we know that it begins to ridicule everything that our adversary has attempted to do on our behalf. It begins to testify on our behalf. It says, you're, you're right, they should have failed. But the fact is, they're still here. Yes, you tried to take out their life. Yes, you tried to derail your destiny. But in your attempt to minimize them, the converse thing happened. And when you thought you were diminishing them, you were only multiplying them out. And that's the beauty, that the birth of the next will bring vindication of our now. Well, Tracy, isn't the word vindicate a little bit strong? Not if you understand the essence of the meaning vindicate. And I like that term because it's a biblical term. It's one that when God begins to speak concerning our future, that God will always use the word vindication because vindication means to acquit. It means to justify. It is evidence that nullifies 
all trumped up accusation. And I don't know if you're like me at all, but when God begins to speak concerning my destiny, and I look back at all the attempts that the adversary has made to destroy my anointing, and God begins to reel that in, and he begins to speak to my future and the terms of vindication that his retribution will supersede anything that the enemy meant to destroy my life, I get real happy real quick because it's our legacy that vindicates all of our pain. God's perspective of legacy is definitely different than our human finite conception of what legacy is. He thinks generationally when we look through a particular window of time. We focus on the issues that we're going through today, the issues that we've been through this week, and God focuses on today's pain through the lens of tomorrow's promise. If we could just get the church to wrap our mind around that one philosophy that while our focus is on the pain that we're going through today, God just sits back and I believe with the biggest smile on his face that you've ever seen while we're focused on this window of time this painful thing that we're going through God just steps back and he says baby if you could just understand that what you're going to birth through this uncommon season of pain and heartache and even tragedy he said you would smile your way through that entire season because the thing that is coming is so great that it will nullify all all current pain. We view covenant with God with a microscope. God views it with a telescope. I mean, we think about that for just a minute. We sit down and we put all of our pain under a microscopic lens and we analyze that thing to death. We sit there and we stare at it. We pull it apart. We pick it apart. And we become so narrow-minded that we don't see the big picture of what God sees. He sees us as a snapshot on our, on our time wall, on our timeline. And if we could ever see the full picture of what God has, we would recognize that this season that we're going through, that yes, it is painful, and yes, it does bring in a, a lot of things that we wish we didn't have to encounter, but if we could just see the whole picture of what this uncommon season of pain is going to birth, we would celebrate with God. We would stand and say, thank you for this season. Thank you for this season of heartache and pain, and though it's not been easy, and though I I don't fully understand it. I know with a smile of certainty on my face, the rev level of revelation, the uncommon anointing that is going to come from this transitional season of pain. We try to vainly examine our covenant with relationship with God through a microscopic lens and we try to evaluate and we have this little self-imposed self-made checklist and we try to evaluate if we're going to achieve everything on that checklist in, in our hundred and so years as we walk the earth and we act as if covenant relationship with God somehow begins with our first breath, our entrance into the world, and that somehow that covenant uh, leaves the moment we exhale our last breath. Do you realize that we serve such an encompassing God, that he is not limited to our natural lifespan, that his purpose is so big and his plan is so generational, that he is not limited to that finite checklist that we've made, that we're supposed to do from the moment that we come in, into the world to the moment that we go out 
We act as if covenant relationship begins with that first breath. And that tragically it ends with the last breath. And that is meism ideology. And the difference between misguided uh, meism ideology and philosophy is that it's contrary to the generational legacy that God has designed for us as believers to live out. That's the reason that we have to recognize that the now generation, and I'm speaking to those who are 30 and over, and that's me, recognizing that the now generation, that we must become the germinated seed that will yield the harvest of the next generation. If we continue to look as our generation, as if it is the only generation, then we miss the entire longevity and the plan and the purposes of what God is longing to do in the earth. Again, God looks at the big picture. He's more concerned with generational legacy than he has perhaps any other thing in the earth. And that's the reason that generational thinking, generational legacy will be challenged on every level. It will be challenged within every season. Why? Because it is the focus of what God is doing in the earth. Today I want to talk about the blessings that are associated, not the curses. So many times we hear about generational curses. I'm tired of hearing about generational curses. I want to hear about generational blessings. Come on, somebody. I believe there is a generation coming. This is my personal belief. Who will walk in the promises of what our generation have prayed I believe there's a generation coming who, when it's our time to sit down, that that generation will immediately stand up. I believe that the current generation is going to find the courage and the tenacity to overcome the meism ideology of self-fulfillment. I believe, and that's a good place to say amen. Are you awake this morning? I believe there's a generation on the horizon who, like David's mighty men, when they see us slay one giant, that they're going to rise to the occasion. And they said, if that one generation can slay the giant in their generation, I know there's four more in my generation. And I want to be like my heritage. I'm going to step up when that, when, that, when that evil thing arises, when the giants of my generation arise rise. I'm going to do what my heritage has done and I'm going to step up. I'm going to grab my stone and I'm going to slay the giants of my generation. You know, that doesn't just happen. That comes from an impartation. That comes from training. I believe future generations will use the generational faith, watch this, of their heritage to hold in their hands The things that only you and I have ever imagined. That's the reason it's so important, Pastor, for our generation to imagine. I love what you are getting them to do this morning. To take and broaden the scope of their imagination. Because what one generation envisions, what one generation imagines, will be the the launching point for the next generation to use their faith. It will become the catalyst for the next generation to hold in their hands the things that you and I have only begun to yet imagine. If we're to conquer the demonic oppression, and there is in the last days, 
it is imperative. And I love how you, what was it Thursday you said? Was that it? A conspiracy meeting here? I, I, I love that. And that's a great sign to me because if we're to conquer the oppression and to do what God wants us to do, it is imperative that we have a collaborative effort. Tracy, what does collaborative mean? It means a co-laboring. When you think about the word collaboration, it means a co-laboring together. That means that everyone in every generation, every race, every creed, every gender, that they are responsible for producing and birthing something. Women aren't the only one who are called by God to birth things. It means all collaborative resources and anointings of multiple generations. Do you know that your generation has an anointing on it? That the previous generation and the generation that's coming after you, that you have such a unique anointing that the generation that came before you or the generation coming after you will have no understanding of what that anointing is like. Why? Because it is specific to your generation. So we need the wisdom of the now generation and we need the strength of the next generation. We need every father and mother in the faith. We need the strength of every son and daughter. We need the dreams of the elders to confirm the visions of the up and coming. We need the now to birth the next and we need the next to vindicate the pain of our now. Psalms 127 and 4. David eloquently said, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are your children. I believe all pastors on staff hear this this morning. I believe that every single arrow that is in this place that you have been entrusted to by God, that every single arrow that you're going to launch forth will reach its point of destination. That every arrow will go into the next generation and it will do for you what you're incapable in this generation. Why? Because those arrows are anointed to do something in the next generation that our generation didn't even have the anointing to accomplish or conquer. I believe with all of my heart that your arrows will not miss their mark in the next generation. I believe that those arrows are going to have your name engraved on them and that when they launch and hit their mark, when they hit the enemies of your destiny, I believe that that enemy will turn around and pull that arrow out of their back and say and ask the question, where did this arrow come from? How did this thing reach me? How did this arrow end up in my back? And when they pull out that arrow, they will see that your name is is engraved on it, that it came from a previous generation, that it came from a time long ago, that it was launched in one generation, but hit its mark in the next generation. Our legacy, I want you to document this, is not only a weapon, it is our reward. Our legacy, why are we passionate about it? Why are we passionate about generational anointings? Because it's not only a weapon, it's our reward. And if we're to invest in anything, it should be our legacy. Because there is a generation who is waiting to be launched into their future. I want to take the next few moments and focus on the three responsibilities. And if you can just give me a little bit of volume here for my throat. 
the three responsibilities that we have to cultivate our legacy, three covenant responsibilities that we have to shape our legacy. Number one, we must shape our legacy with our words. And I want you to think as we go through these three, I want you to think as your responsibilities as a parent, I want you to think as your responsibilities as a body of Christ here. And for those of you who don't have natural seed, every single person in this place, whether you have a natural seed or not, you have an obligation, a responsibility from heaven to cultivate the next generation. The greatest influencers in my life were no one that I was related to in the natural, no natural DNA, the people that have cultivated and shaped my future are those who were willing to step out and reach into a next generation and cultivate spiritually what would become their legacy. The purpose of legacy, document this, I'm just teaching this morning, isn't to spend a lifetime searching for our destiny, but it's to equip the next generation on how to walk in theirs. At this stage, and I say this frequently, at this stage in life, I don't want to hear one more sermon on how we're to seek out the keys to the kingdom. At this point, we should be mature enough to where we are handing over the keys to the kingdom. If we are still searching for the keys to the kingdom, then that means we haven't done due diligence. At this stage in life, we should be equipping and handing over the keys to the next generation. We must train our legacy to see with their eyes what we've only been hearing about. There is a natural and a spiritual sensory order. Listen, it's a relatively unknown fact that generationally, we actually hear on different frequencies. And if you've ever had a teenager in your house, you, you will say amen. There, it's not that the signal is stronger or weaker. But that generationally, we've been designed by God naturally to hear on different frequencies. So when you say, my teenager, here's not one thing I say. There might be a little bit of validity in that. They tell us that adults age 25 and older, that they hear at a frequency between 1 and 13,000 hertz. Those who are under the age of 25 here on a frequency between 13,000 and 25,000 hertz. Tracy, what does that mean? How is that relevant to my world? It means that each generation has the potential to hear something that a previous or future generation might miss. That's the reason when the elder generation acts as if they can hear and know everything... They're equally as at fault as the younger generation who thinks they don't need to hear anything. Because generationally, we hear on different frequencies, and God ordered it that way. What is audible to one generation can be completely inaudible to the next generation. 
A perfect example of that is Eli and Samuel. Because the generation, Eli's generation, which should be in tune with the voice of God and what is transpiring in that generation. It says because his spiritual ears had grown dull, he was no longer in tune with hearing what God was saying. That God had to take his prophetic word and place it on a frequency that the next generation could hear. Do you know there are prophetic words that are meant strictly for our generation? But if we stop our ears and refuse to hear what the Spirit of God is saying, then God has to take that same word and rehearse it into the untrained ears of a generation who is unprepared to receive the fullness of what God is actually saying. Do you know what an incredible responsibility it is for us to hear what the Spirit of God is saying in this generation? Because if we can't hear it, the next generation will never see it. What we are unable or unwilling to hear, the next generation will never be able to see. And if they can't see it, they'll never walk in it. Again, there is a natural and a sensory order to the way that God speaks generationally. They tell us in the gestation process of an unborn child that the baby within the womb begins to develop ears at eight weeks but they don't develop eyelids until 26 weeks. Why? Because hearing was designed to be the first major information channel that we as uh, spiritual beings being housed in an earthly body. He said the first thing that's going to develop in your sensory organs is not that of touch. It's not that of seeing. But the first thing that you're going to be equipped by God to do is to hear his voice. Maybe that's the reason the Bible says that faith comes by what? And until you hear a thing, you'll never be able to see a thing. And until you can hear it and see it, you'll never take possession of it. What one generation hears, the next generation should see. First Kings 18, let's look at this. Are you receiving this morning? It's going to get good. Elijah stood with the servant and King Ahab. Imagine being Elijah. And you're in a season of uncommon drought. You're Elijah. You have your servant with you and you have King Ahab. And Elijah turns and he says to the king, he said, King, I know that in the natural that all you're seeing is drought. <laughs> he said, but in a supernatural realm, all I hear is an abundance of rain. I mean, check this out. You have a prophet, a man of God. You have a pagan, wicked king. You have a king who with his natural eyes, all he sees is drought, famine, and lack. You have this crazy prophet, and by crazy I mean a man who thinks and hears an entirely different realm. So in the natural, he appears to be absolutely 100% bona fide crazy. But thank God for those 
who when everyone else in the natural, all they see is a season of drought. All they see is a season of lack. All they see in the natural is what's not working and what's not being healed and what's not, what's not prospering. And that's all they see. And King Elijah looks at the king and he said, with all due respect, he said, your eyes have been focused on this drought. He said, but my eyes have been tightly shut because I haven't been focusing on what we're not seeing, but I've been focusing on what God is saying. My eyes have not been looking at what's not happening but my ears have been in tune with what God is saying and although in the natural you see drought all I hear is God say over and over and over that there is an abundance of rain and it is coming there is an abundance of rain and it is coming with a prophetic warning Elijah turns to Ahab and he said, King, he said, if I were you, he said, I would get in that chariot and go down that mountain. He said, lest the blessings that are coming, they overtake you and destroy you. Have you ever considered that there are narrow windows of time where God will give us divine opportunities to reposition ourselves so that the very thing that is called to be a blessing doesn't become a curse. Do you know that you, God can send the right thing and you be in the wrong place. And the thing that was assigned by God to bless you can instead become a curse to your life. Tracy, is that even biblical? The Bible says that leftover uneaten manna will always become lethal. God will give us opportunities in our season of drought to reposition ourselves so that when the thing that is coming, because it is so large and because it is so encompassing, if we don't reposition ourselves to receive the capacity of what God is bringing next, the very thing that should be a blessing, if we're not careful, will become a curse. Let me give you a natural example. In Dallas, my husband and I, for months, have walked the shoreline because we've been in a severe drought. I mean, a severe drought. Our lakes and rivers have been 27 feet below normal. They said a few more months of drought. Not only have we been rationing water and being having to be conservative on what days we can water and when we can use water, they said a few more weeks, a few more months of this level of drought, then the water will totally not be drinkable at all. So we're 27, how high is this building? What is that, about 24 feet? So you can imagine that what would be normal would be 27, everyone, everyone to look up, would be the height of the ceiling plus three feet above that to get us back to normal, to get us out of our drought. Look up, 24 feet plus three more feet to get us back to normal. And so my husband and I, we were known, <laughs> the marina owners who are not spiritual, who don't know anything about prayer, would watch us walk that riverbank and we would pray. And our prayer, because we were, we were if you're ever in that season of intense drought, we pray ridiculous prayers like this. God, if you can just send us enough rain to get back to normal. 
It's amazing how we limit God. If you can just get all of our bodies well, if you can just get our bank accounts back to normal, functioning, if, if, if you can just get our business back to normal. And so we pray for normal because what we're looking at and where the level and the natural of normal is seems so high and so far away that we don't pray for an overflow. We don't pray for an abundance. We, we've limited our prayers to normal. And so we would walk, and in our natural minds, and this is where this is dangerous, we begin to calculate and the natural, how many hurricanes that we would have to have to get us back to normal. We begin to calculate, well, what if there's not a hurricane? How many weeks, how many months? And then we figured it mathematically, how many years it was going to take for us and the natural to get back to normal. Ever done that with God? So we would walk and we would pray, God, get us back to normal. And we're thinking, well, maybe in two years or maybe in, in 36 months that if everything works and there's not a prolonged drought on top of this drought, and if it begins to rain, then in 36 months we might be back to normal. And an odd thing happened. We went from being 27 feet under to in the last 30 two days, we went to 33 feet over normal. Here's the crazy deal. Not one hurricane. Not one. It began to rain every day. Four inches, two inches, three inches. I mean, and here's the crazy deal. We couldn't give a hurricane credit for what was happening. It would be every day the water would begin to rise one step. We would walk and pray. Thank you, God. Thank you that it's, that it's one foot back to normal. Thank you that it's three feet back to normal. God, we have 24 feet to go. We began to walk. We began to pray. And then every day, and if you watched our weather, it was crazy because they would say things like this. Well, we just don't quite understand. There's a weather pattern that's coming through, and it should be moving on out of Dallas, but it's hovering over Dallas. And so instead of it coming through and moving on, it's caught a circular path, and it's hovering. And we don't know why it's not moving on, and we, don't, we can't get rid of this thing. And so all of a sudden, we weren't 27 feet under, but when we got back to normal within about 15 days... The same people that thought we were crazy for praying began to ask us to pray another way. We thank you for praying for getting us back to normal. But now that we're back to normal, we need you to pray that God will now shut up the rain. Because if we're not careful, the thing that if we've not planned for it, if we've not planned for it, I mean, we say, God, give us an overflow. Give us an increase. We pray things when we're this low. Oh, God, if you can just get us back to normal. What happens when we pray for overflow and we don't plan for it? We went from not being able to get our boat into the water 
to now we can't get to the road that leads to the next road that leads to the alternate road that creates a pathway to get to the ramp to get to the boat. So which is worse, drought or flood? Because they present an equal problem. And the deal is, if we don't stockpile enough before the drought comes, the drought will consume us. But conversely, while we're in a drought, if we don't prepare for overflow, everything that God means for an overflow will consume the very thing that we've been praying for. And in 32 days, we went from 27 feet under to 33 feet over. And because no one believed that it was coming, all of the overflow, all of the excess that could have been reserved, held, and channeled will now go to waste. Listen. Elijah looked at his servant. He said, go to the edge of the mountain. One generation looks to the next. He said, go to the edge of the mountain. He said, I've been hearing an abundance of rain. Oh, listen to your spiritual mothers and fathers. I've been hearing an abundance of rain. And the now generation looks at the next generation. And he says, go to the edge of the mountain. And I want you to come back to me in the moment that you began to see what I've been hearing. I want you to report back to me. And so the protege comes back. And he looks and he said, Father, I'm sorry. I believe the protege still thought he was crazy. He said, I'm sorry. I'm not seeing anything on the horizon that looks like it's in connection with what you're hearing and a godly man looked at the next generation and he said go look again and you come back to me when you can see what I've been hearing what I've been hearing and he comes back to him a second time and he said I'm still not seeing what you've been hearing and he said then go look again and he comes back a third time and a fourth time a fifth time a sixth time and on the seventh time the next generation comes back to the now generation and said, I see something on the edge of the horizon that it looks like it might be in conjunction with what you've been hearing. What is our mandate? Say it until the next generation can see it. Say it over and over and over and over and over and over until what you've been hearing becomes manifest in the next generation. When we receive revelation concerning generational covenant, we will speak it until they can see it. Months ago, we witnessed the luxury of witnessing the footage. We weren't there in person, but we saw the pictures of the ultra high-def 3D sonogram of our middle daughters, our second-born's baby in the womb, and if that wasn't enough, that would have been our second grandchild, but we had never seen one outside of the womb. And I remember they showed us picture, and if that was not enough, grandeur, to see that grandchild in that mother's womb, something amazing happened. They said as they were sitting there taking the pictures of that unborn child who looked nestled in her mother's womb, just sound asleep, feet propped up, hands folded, asleep in the mother's womb, it said the moment that her father walked in, he walked over and he began to speak to that womb and he began to talk to his daughter. And the moment 
that he spoke her name on that ultra high def sonogram. The moment the father spoke the daughter's name, that that daughter in the womb woke up and opened her eyes. Do you know there is a generation who is longing for spiritual fathers and mothers to call them by name, to speak forth the promise of their destiny, to prophesy their future to their tiny infant ears. We're to cultivate their future with our words. We're to shape the values. Let me get on to all of us here. We're to shape the values of our legacy. Our legacy should not be shaping the values of their heritage. Someone say amen. It's the bow that should decide the direction the arrows are going. And many times I think that the reason the next generation feels comfortable in redefining the values of our generation is because many times we've had an unstable bow that have shot them in the wrong direction and that somehow they've missed their mark because all of a sudden the next generation feels comfortable and delegating what our moral absolutes are right and basic right and wrong good and evil should be the bible says the core doctrines absolutes are to be passed down generation to generation. They are not to be passed down, ratified, amended, and passed back up to the previous generation. If the arrows of our legacy are falling short, it's our obligation to retrieve them and relaunch them in the right direction. We must train the next generation to see things that we have only heard about we are in a season where we must disengage from all static noise. Every competing voice that would make us unable to hear what the voice of the Holy Spirit is saying next. Tracy, what is noise? I love this definition. It is the random, undesirable, electric energy that disrupts communication and interferes with the message that is being transmitted. We must not allow the noise of the external to disrupt the voice of the internal. What if Abraham would have stopped listening concerning his legacy because he didn't like the first instruction that God gave him? If Abraham would have stopped listening so many times, we as parents, let's just break this down. Even spiritual mothers and fathers, Sometimes God will ask us to do something with the next generation that we don't enjoy. The moment that we disengage from God's voice because we don't like what he's saying concerning the next generation is the moment that we could be like Abraham had he stopped listening to the first generation. You know what would have happened? He would have prematurely sacrificed his legacy on an altar that God never intended. Don't let the instruction that God is giving you concerning the next generation disrupt your faith frequency because what we hear, the next generation will walk in. Number two, are you receiving? Number two, we'll hurry. Number two, we must impart our faith rather than our fears. We must impart our faith rather than our fears. 
Faith is more important than money. It's more important than success, fame, or happiness. Why? Because you can be attacked on every side, but as long as you have faith, you have a future. Faith keeps us in covenant relationship with God's will. Do you know that is the one of the only things that will keep us intact with God's will and plan for our lives is our ability to walk in faith. They tell us that there are only two types. This was hard for me to wrap my mind around. They tell us there are over 2,000 documented, clinically documented types of fear and phobia. And I have friends that, no offense, but I think they have 1,200 of the 2,000. They tell us that we as human beings, that God only instilled two types of fear within us, and they were for our protection. The fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. That means that all other fear in our life has been superimposed because we've seen that fear modeled somewhere in our heritage. Wow. Perhaps that's the reason that it took 100 years for God to place Isaac in the arms of Abraham. What if God said the generation that is coming next is so significant and my covenant is so wrapped up in the next generation that although I want to release them into the arms of Abraham because he is not conditioned to be a man of faith yet, he's still walking in a level of fear that I can't release what is next into the now because of the level of doubt and unbelief. Wow. God had to work out the insecurities of one generation before he could release the seed of the next generation because he needed Abraham to raise up a legacy of faith rather than a legacy of fear. And maybe today we're like Abraham. We have a handful of promises, but a private chamber in our heart that's full of fear. We have great expectation, one part of us, and another part that struggles with insecurity, fear, and anxiety. And I believe that today that God is going to set individuals free once and for all to walk in a level of uncommon freedom that will give God permission to birth what he's longing to do next in the earth. What I love about God's mercy and grace. As at the intersection a faith, fear, and a promise. That God didn't look at Abraham and judge Abraham because of his fear. He looked beyond Abraham's fear. And he said, I'm going to partner with you in spite of your fear. Now, I've had great theologians, and I'm not going to debate on this. I'm going to give you my point of view. I've had great... I didn't mean that sarcastically. It is awesome. I've had theologians say that God can only work with faith. And that may be true. But when I look at the life of Abraham, God covenanted with Abraham while he was still walking in fear. Wow, that's a powerful concept. I've observed that God doesn't just work with our faith, that he does the unimaginable. He looks at our most deeply rooted fears. And you know what he does with that fear? He laughs at that fear with us. And he covenants with that fearful part of us until we can learn to embrace it. Sometimes he has to work with our fear until he can transform it into faith. 
He stood back and he looked at Abraham. He said, I've got a covenant for you. He said, but all you fear are the armies of Egypt. He said, my covenant is stronger than all the armies of Egypt. I promise that I will be your shield when trouble comes and when, when enemies surround you. I promise that they can't touch you. When the battle comes, I know you're not a man of war. If anything, you're a man of, of peace and passivity. He said, I'll raise up 300 in your own household that will fight battles that you will win. And when it looks like Lot, someone in your own camp, is going to usurp your authority, he said, I covenant with you that no man in the earth can take what I've reserved for you. God looks at the most unsurrendered part of our lives. That is what fear is. And he covenants with that most unsurrendered part of our lives in spite of us. He says, I choose to covenant with the weakest part of you because my focus goes beyond the microscopic self-inflicted fears of today because my covenant, watch this, isn't confined to your fears, but my covenant will be established in spite of your fears. Thank you, Father, in the midst of Abraham, regurgitating all of his fears. I believe God grabs him by the hand. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. He said, son, you've been in this tent for too long. He said, you've been focused on the four walls of this tent and what's not happening and what's not transpiring. And he said, your focus has been on that empty bassinet across the room. And your focus has been on what is not happening and why your seed appears to be dead and all the things that aren't growing right. And he said, as long as your focus is on that, he opened up the curtains and he showed him the stars of the heavens. And he said, till your focus is off of that, I can never give you all of this. Where is our focus? Where is our focus? Stop dwelling on what we're not seeing. He said, you've confined your legacy to one empty bassinet and one baby that's not been born. He said, if you would step out of the four walls of your meism philosophy and step out, I will give you a revelation of what your legacy really entails. And when you can see that legacy, you'll begin to walk in it. That's the moment. The fertility of your faith will override the infertility of your fears. I'm going to say it again. That's the moment the fertility of your faith will overtake the infertility of your fears. I want us all to remember this. What we face in fear, our legacy will face in fear. What we face in faith, the next generation will face in faith. Your legacy will run towards giants or they will always run from giants. That's the importance and the impact of modeling our faith rather than our fears. And lastly, I close with this third thing. We're talking about our responsibility to our legacy. I know it's long. I've got one morning with you. Come on. Number three. That's the only thing we're here to do this morning. Thirdly. We must heal the wounds of our legacy. 
We must heal the wounds of the next generation. When I consider the man that God handpicked and women that he chose through divine selection to demonstrate the power of his covenant, I couldn't help but pause as I studied the covenant that God gave to David, the Davidic covenant. Because more than any other covenant modeled in the Bible, it demonstrates the longevity of legacy and the essence of modeling and representing eternal kingdom. And as I began to research the Davidic covenant, I was all inspired. As I read all of the unconditional promises that God gave to David for generations that are to come. I mean, I think it's self-imposing when we want a covenant that can only be performed in our generation. I mean, it's like we have this mindset that, that we have these goals and this list and we want to exit this earth and into eternity, crossing that ribbon, taking our trophy and our medal and entering into heaven. What about if we had such a wide array of goals and dreams that when we pass, they're not even fulfilled in our generation? God, give us such a mindset that no, I don't have to hold the trophy. And no, the line doesn't have to be broken when I cross through that finish line. I pray there's so much ahead for the next generation that when I cross the finish line, that I won't be crossing it to receive my trophy, but I'll be handing off the baton to the next generation. Generational legacy. As I began to study David's covenant, I was amazed. I said, God, I want a covenant like that. I said, God, what do you have to do to qualify for a covenant like that? Have you ever seen promises in the Bible and you go, I want that? <laughs> I mean, what do we say, women? We're natural born, what? Reachers. I want that, 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 and that. Until you begin to read what you have to qualify for to reach for that. And so as I was reading the Davidic covenant and I'm saying, God, I want all of that you promised David. I want a legacy like David. And so I began to analyze what does a person like little old me have to do to qualify for something like what David had. And I began to document David's history. And as I began to read through the Bible, one question came to mind. As we read through the, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, that he was the most written about, is that correct? Person outside of Jesus in the entire Bible. His story encompasses more of the Bible next to Jesus than anyone. And I was reading that. I began to study David's life. And I had to ask the question because it depends on what side of the fence that you're on when you're reading that day. It will determine if you see David as a hero or David as a full-out criminal. Hear me. On one page, I read how David as a youth stepped up and he killed a giant. That when he played his heart, there was such an anointing on his worship that it dispelled demons from a king. He rescued the wounded, delivered nations, and many times was overly merciful to his enemies. Hello. And we can turn and read the next page. Then all that, David was a liar. He was merciless. He was a thief, he was a murderer, he was a traitor, he was an adulterer, and he was a polygamist. And yet, in spite of all these things, God looked at David and he said, that right there, that's the man after my own heart. I said, what? I said, God, I help my spiritual myopathy because I'm not understanding how a man who could do all of that 
could qualify for all of this. And I said, God, you're seeing something in David that I can't see. Because after all of that level of sin and dysfunction, I said, how in the world could you make that man? How could you say, that's a man after my own heart? And how could you give him a level of generational promises like that? And there are some things that only the Holy Spirit can reveal. And so I asked the Holy Spirit for, for, for a rhema word. And here's what he said. When I said, how does a man qualify for this unending covenant kingdom rulership? And his response to me was this. He said, because he picked up the broken arrows of the next generation. He picked up the broken arrows of the next generation. Do you know that we have a generation, the next generation of young men and women arrows who are not reaching their destination. Sons and daughters who are craving and crying and begging for someone who will launch them into their future. And the sad reality is we have millions of arrows who've been broken, cracked, shot in the wrong direction, are left behind in a field to waste. And David, though he was courage, courageous, valiant, heroic, and fearless, he was moved with compassion when he saw someone in the next generation who had been stepped over or discarded or who was yet to reach their potential. And that's the reason that David made certain he called his men together and he said at the king's table, he said, I want you to bring up a bonus chair. I want you to bring up an extra chair. And I'm sure that they were all looking and questioning, who is this chair that's been set at the king's table? Who is that far? And he said, I want someone to go find me the broken and lame leg Mephibosheth. And they looked at David and said, don't you know that that was your right, uh, your arch rival? Don't you know that that's Saul's grandson? And if there's anyone who should not be brought to the kingdom, anyone who should not qualify to dine at the king's table then it should be Mephibosheth and David looked at him all and he said that's a re exact reason that I want that lame boy sitting at my table because Mephibosheth and I know something that all of you don't know had there not been a rebellious grandfather in his heritage had someone not be holding him in a time of turmoil had they not dropped and wounded him he would have been sitting today on this throne and not me and David did the unthinkable he reached into his enemy's legacy and picked up a broken young man and he made a place at the king's table everywhere that David went from the cave of Dullam where there were 300 men who were dead distressed and highly discontented David was on the run for crimes he had not committed. He picked them up. He refurbished them. He remade them. And he relaunched them. Do you know there are two types of people in this room? Only two. Leaders, fathers, mothers, two types. Pastor Brendan, that's what I love about you. Two types of people. One who steps over broken arrows. They're of no use. They're rejects. They're not beneficial to the kingdom. What is it? And those who reach down and they pick up every broken arrow in their environment. All leadership can be assessed by two things. One thing, one question. They obsess about one thing. Saul obsessed. He asked one question. 
paranoid schizophrenic. What is going to happen to my kingdom? And when I say that, I don't say that disparagingly. I think his obsession over, quote, his kingdom led him into paranoid schizophrenia. There was another leader like David who asked a question. Who can I train to take over my kingdom? Two types of leader. Jonathan, Saul's son, became David's best friend. Imagine a pair. One that knew in the natural that he was in line succession to receive the crown, but he never would. And then you had a shepherd boy who was in line for absolutely nothing, but in the spiritual realm was qualified to be the next ruler. What would happen today if in the natural in our families and spiritually as a body, if we simply gave a rip less who was called by God to wear the crown the next day? How many families would not self-destruct, be so we're so competitive of who's in charge and who's in control and who's leading and who's making decisions? What if in the body of Christ it really didn't matter who wore the crown? Tracy, what happens when we begin to think generationally? God will build for us what we cannot build for ourselves. And I promise you, give me three minutes and I'm closing. I'm leaving out a lot of things I'd like to share with you. It should be a three-day just on this. Listen, this is in me. This is what I do best right here. What happens? It's how the anointing flows on me. What happens when we begin to think generationally? God will build for us what in all of our struggling can never build for ourselves. God gave to David a covenant that tied his legacy to the throne for generations. Why? Because he picked up the broken arrows and repaired them. David comes to the end of his life. And according to the promise that God is giving me, let's see, 12, 12, 14. I'm almost, I'm a year short of what I believe the years that God has given me in the earth. That's what I believe. And with every, if he tarries, and with every generation, every decade that passes in my life, I begin to think entirely different about my assignment and the generation. When you hit certain generational marks in your life, you begin to think differently. And this is where David was. And David has one thing in mind that he wants to do for God before he leaves the earth. And David goes to Nathan, who was acting as, as a prophetic liaison between King David and God. And he said, Nathan, there's one thing that I want to do. I want to build God a house. And interestingly, Nathan goes to God. And two or three times, Nathan comes back to David. And he said, you know what, David? I know you're passionate about doing this. He said, but God is saying, no, that this is not for you to do. What do we do when God says no to something that we really want to do for God? say, God, you don't understand. I'm about to leave the earth and you don't understand. I really, really, really want to do this for you. It's not about me. It's all about you. And yet God says no. And God says to David, he said, I've got a much better idea. 
He said, I've watched you pick up those crazy broken arrows all of these decades. He said, why don't you go out and I go out into a field? And he said, let's just pick up those arrows that you've refurbished. And you take your best, most stable bow, David. And he said, let's go out into a field and let's see how far and how high the arrows of the next generation can go. Although God turned David's proposal aside, God didn't turn David aside. God said, I have a better idea. And late one night, God speaks to Nathan who comes to David. And God said these words, and I'm going to close with reading you what God said to David. He said, go tell my servant, my son David. Isn't that beautiful? In the midnight hour when God wakes up a prophet, and he said, go tell my son. Go tell my boy. He said, David, he said, I took you out of the pasture. He reminds David where he came from. I took you out of the pasture and I made you a prince over my people. I've been with you wherever you went and I've cut off all of your enemies. He said, now I'm going to make your name great as one of the greatest in the earth. He said, I will give you now. Rest from all your enemies and all your adversaries. He said, I will make of you a house. I know you're wanting to build me one. He said, but I'm going to build your house. I will raise up your offspring and I will establish their kingdom. I will build a house for them and I will establish their kingdom forever. I will discipline your sons and grandchildren with my steadfast love and my anointing will not depart from them. And your kingdom, your legacy shall be made sure forever. God said, I'm going to shakad my word over your legacy. I'm going to shakad my word. He said, I'm going to watch over my word that I've given you. I'm going to put it under house arrest. And I'm going to, when you, he told the prophet Jeremiah, I promise you I'm finishing. He told the prophet Jeremiah, he gave him an opportunity. He said, son, he said, what do you see? He said, not what am I saying? He told Jeremiah, he said, behold, I put my words in your mouth. I've given you anointing over nations and kingdoms to pluck up, to tear down, to build, to overthrow. He said, only am I the God of your conception. I'm Lord over your assignment. He said, I've given you everything that you need to fulfill your assignment. And he said, I've got one question. You've heard me say it. What do you see? God's made some of you prophetic promises in your family. He's made Prophetic orations over and over and over and over and over against this house right here. And we come to stages in our life. And maybe you're like, not like me, but I've done this. God, I've heard it over and over. I've heard it till I can quote it blindfold and backwards. Now I want to see what I've been hearing. And he asked Jeremiah one question. What do you see? Not what are you hearing, but what are you ready to see? 
I believe this house corporately. You've heard it. I believe these are the closing months of the last time that you're going to have to hear it. I believe rapid where you've been maybe 27 feet under that God is giving you a space and a time and a prophetic window. And here's my charge to you. Don't agree and ask for normal, but prepare for what you're going to do with the floodgates of the overflow that are coming. Because how you prepare will determine the reservoir that you have, listen, and keep and maintain for the next season. Amen. Will you stand with me? And if you'll just play some music softly back there. I was praying. I was awake at 6 your time. They're going to play, just play softly, just a, a worship CD, very softly. Thank you. I know I've given your AV team a lot of instruction this week, and you followed them fully, and I thank you for that. I was up at 6 a.m., and I don't like 6 a.m. on any time zone. My brain begins to work at 10 a.m. every single morning. So the last few moment, mornings, I've been awake at 6 a.m., and I said, God, I, I want you today to close out this service the way that you want to close it out. Because I feel there was an urgency on what we come into agreement with. What we began to speak generationally into the lives of each other. And so I went down, and just a little bit down on that volume. I was down probably at 8 this morning, and I went down to the business center. And I began to type out this little thing that God began to give me. I said, God, what do you want to speak generationally? And so I had them print out a covenant agreement between the now generation and the next generation. And here's how we're going to do this. I want, I want the ushers to come forward first with the pieces of paper that I had printed off. And I'm really OCD and a perfectionist when it comes to words. And so if God would have given me this assignment when I went home, we might have been here all day with this confession. So if you'll come up here and both, both ushers, if you'll stand one right here and one right here and face them. I want every single person that's in here and you're under the age of 30. That means you're 29, 11 months and 29 days and you're under. If you fit that criteria, you're under the age of 30. I want you to come down. These ushers are going to give you a piece of paper and I want you to stand facing me. If you are under the age of 30, I want you to move out right now. Come on. That's not a hard, hard instruction. Come on. I want you to make a single file line. And don't block the aisles. I want you to stretch out all the way across. Make a tight single file line. Everyone that is under. Now don't fib because you want to look cute. And I want you to take a step back because there's going to be a row in front of you. I want you to go all the way, all the way to the right. As far as you can go. Keep moving. Come on. Move, move all the way to the left. Keep the aisles open. No peeking, no reading your sheet prematurely. Come on. Is, all, is that all the underage 30 that's in the building? Okay, I want everyone that is over the age of 30 to do the same thing, to come down, and I want you to face and stand opposite of this line. Don't read your paper. I'm seeing who's following instruction. Come on, I know you're overachievers in this house, but achieving only comes with obedience. Amen? 
I just wanted to know your ages. There's nothing spiritual about this. Well, honey, if you're going to do it, you need to get in the right line. Come on now. Come on, everybody. Come on, if you need to share a paper, if there's not enough, come on. Crowd in. Come on. Quickly. Come on. And if you need to make a second file line behind this line, then we've got steps right here and you can make a second line. But here is the instruction that the Holy Spirit said and why I've never done anything like this ever. We're going to make two proclamations. Everyone that's facing me, I want you to raise your hand and look at me. I want everyone. They're definitely under 30. We're going to work with following instructions. I love you guys. Everyone that is in that line closest to the exit, raise. If you don't know how old you are, Lord, come on. If you're facing me, I want you to raise your hand and look at me. Okay, put your hand down. You are the now generation. I'm sorry, I got that backwards. You're the next generation. That's what I get for being cute. You are the next generation. Everyone that is facing the back of the church. You are the now generation. So what the Holy Spirit has instructed me to do, because we are thinking generationally. When we begin to read this proclamation, the now is going to read to the next generation and the next is going to read to the now generation. And when you read this proclamation, I've written it to where everywhere there's a comma, everywhere there's a period. That means you're going to pause and we're going to read it together. But as you're reading this, I want you to try to look into the eyes of the generation that is standing opposite you. Because today we're going to come into covenant agreement that generationally, that God is going to bridge the gap. See the line between you? Today God is going to bridge the generational gap. He's going to pull us together to do uncommon things in the next generation. So everyone that is facing the direction that I am facing, are you with me? We are the now generation. And in one accord, out loud, we're going to come into covenant with a generation that is next. And this is going to be our covenant agreement. And if you can, I want you to look into their eyes. Everyone lock eyes on someone before we read. I want you to lock eyes with them. Because you're going to come into a covenant agreement with them. Are you ready to read with me? The now generation, everyone that is facing the direction I am facing. Are you ready to read? Ready? One, two, three. Today, I covenant with you the next generation that I will use my God-given vocabulary to shape your destiny and your future. Today, I solemnly promise to you, my spiritual seed, that I will model and impart my faith rather than my fears. I will teach you how to run towards giants instead of fleeing giants. Today, by oath of my word, I promise to help bind up your wounds, heal your pain, and restore any broken area of your life. To you, 
the next generation and our future. We vow to love you, believe in you. We are committed to launching you into your God-appointed destiny. This is our calling and this is our commitment. Someone say amen. amen. Do you, the next generation, receive those words? Somebody say amen. The next generation. I want you to lock eyes with someone standing in front of you. Now this, and I want you to be real serious about this because this is your covenant responsibility to those who have paved the path spiritually of where you're going. So everyone who is facing me on the count of three, now I want you to read this like you are soldiers. I want you to blow the eardrums of the future generation. And in one accord on the count of three, I want us to verbalize our commitment to the previous generation. Are you ready? Next generation, are you ready? On the count of three, ready? One, two, three. We, the next generation, thank God for a holy heritage. We commit to you, our ancestors in the faith, that we will have an ear to receive godly instruction imparted through wise counsel. Today, we stand united, determined to grow strong in faith, refusing to succumb to the lies of fear and doubt. Today, we release all controlling and rebellious spirits. We will walk in honor, dignity, and purpose. Father, we thank you for the wise counsel of our leaders and parents. We appreciate their patience. We rely on their wisdom, and we are thankful for a righteous heritage in the name of Jesus amen I want you to go and hug somebody that's in the line across from you in Jesus name hug somebody hallelujah thank you Jesus hallelujah. amen Hallelujah. You may be seated so we can close out. Hallelujah. Take your seat and we're going to dismiss this morning my portion. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Have a seat quickly, quickly. I know you guys need to go. Come on, everyone, take your seat. Pastor, you can come stand beside me because I really am finished. That way I won't, I won't get sucked back into preaching. All right, listen. What happens when we live generationally? If you can just turn that off. Thank you. What happens when we live generationally? What is our reward? Here's what I typed down. They buried Joseph and the far extreme of his inheritance. Not the entrance, but the far extreme of his inheritance. I don't know about you, but I don't want to bump the border of what God says I have for me. I want to be a boundary breaker, and I want to be buried in the far extreme of the ultimate borders of what God has said that I can have. Father, join hands together. Father, I thank you for the divine covenant relationships of my friends that I pray for every few days, if not daily. Father, I thank you for the corporate anointing 
that they have led this army of believers in faith and not in fear. I thank you that they've modeled what generational covenant means in the earth. And so I prophetically speak over in their lives that they will not just bump the borders, but they, Father, would live out their days and the far extreme of crazy radical borders that they themselves have not even dreamed of. And Father, I thank you that they would begin to prepare today, not just for normal, but that 33 feet above, that you're going to give them this narrow window of time, Father, to plan with what they're going to do with the divine overflow, with the divine excess, so that they can storehouse spiritual things that if ever a drought is in the land again, that like Joseph, they will know what to do and they will have barn yards full of resources, ammunition, and wealth. Amen. I thank you for this today. I love them and a covenant love. And I thank you for our relationship and the earth. In Jesus' name. Amen.